I'm Daniel Chacon. On today's show, I'm going to talk with Dennis O'Hearn, author of Nothing But an Unfinished Song, Bobby Sands, the Irish hunger striker who ignited a generation. This is the story of his time in prison, rebelling against prison rules, organizing this hunger strike, writing letters, and essentially advancing the revolution of the IRA. I didn't know much about Bobby Sands before I read this book, but I respect the writer with whom I work here at the university. But I have to be honest, I started the book with some doubts. I mean, not so much, my God, I have to read this thick erudite tome. More like, what if I don't like it? But I picked it up, started reading, and immediately pulled. I was pulled into the story of Bobby Sands and this very famous hunger strike. The, the book often plays like a movie in your head, but it's informative. Now I know why Sands was such an important cultural figure in the 70s and 80s, how he became almost like the Irish Che Guevara. Dennis O'Hearn's book is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year, 20 years of being in print from a trade press, which if you're in publishing, you know is rather rare for a scholarly book, but I could see why this book is still living and breathing. I'm happy to celebrate the anniversary with this conversation I had with Dennis O'Hearn. Words on a wire. Words on a wire. Dennis O'Hearn, welcome to Words on a Wire. Nice to be here. Uh, today, or not today, this year, I believe, is the 40th anniversary of Bobby Sands' death. And it is the 20th anniversary of your book on Bobby Sands. So uh, it's amazing. Your book has been alive for 20 years. A lot of history books don't last that long. So uh, tell me, how do you feel about it having such longevity and still really being a, an important text when it comes to knowing a little, knowing about Bobby Sands? Well, it, it is very, um, you know, heartening that this has had, had the impact that it's had. Uh, the other thing about it is, is that, you know, when it first came out, you know, I think as all authors, you know, you're, you're sitting there saying, you know, it would be great if it was in the airports. And it would be, <laughs> I remember I picked up, uh, it was John Lee Anderson's biography of Che Guevara, which had a big impact mm -hmm. on me and was one reason why I started looking toward biography as a, as a way of expressing things and really giving us an insight into social processes and issues. And uh, and I picked that up in an airport, I think in Dallas or somewhere wow. like. You know. <laughs> so did it, it ever okay, make it? We ever into get an this into an airport? You did know, it ever, did, did it ever make it into an airport? No, not to my knowledge. <laughs> it it, it might have been in Dublin Airport. I don't know about that, but right. uh, because it was, you know, the the number one seller in Ireland for for. Wow. Uh, but you know, the the more important impact it has had is is really on prisoners and prison movements throughout mm -hmm. the world. So. You know, it, it's been written, uh, read by prisoners and supermaxes all over the U.S. and Ohio and California. Uh, there was a huge impact that it had, for example, in Pelican Bay, where, you know, prisoners who read it in, in Pelican Bay then began a hunger strike. And wow. Long-term solitary confinement. 
And, you know, they basically were able to defeat the government of California uh, by using many of the many of the sort of uh, strategies that they were reading about that the Irish prisoners used, you know, so many right, years. Right. You know, and, so, and having a book in print for 20 years is no small uh, uh, detail uh, on, in, in the life of this book. And especially because this is done by a trade press. This is not done by uh, an independent press whose who's, uh, main goal is to preserve the literature. This is somebody, this is a press that uh, actually relies on on revenue from from the books yeah, that they publish. Yeah, well, they, maybe they're just trying to make up as much revenue as they can. But, <laughs> it, right. You know, it came out with Nation Books uh, in the U.S. And then in, in uh, Ireland, it came out, Ireland and Britain, it came out with Pluto. Wow. Uh, they're both kind of trade presses, you know, but also okay. presses that have a very strong impact on kind of socially conscious right. and that kind of a thing. So I think that was part of it as well. You know, I remember talking to the publisher of, of Nation Books at the time when they decided to bring it out. And he said, you know, I've been looking for a biography of Bobby Sands for years. Wow. And, you know, they were, you know, for them, it was just a, a project, I think, that they really had a commitment to. Out of respect for your book and for the 40th anniversary of Bobby Sands, I'm wearing a T-shirt today that says resist. <laughs> I, I see that. I thought it said ISIS at first, but you opened it up and now I know it said resist. Yeah, yeah. I, ISIS, the uh, the goddess, of course. Um, uh, yes, of course. The Yeah. And uh, so let's start from the beginning. How did, did uh, Dennis O'Hearn first hear about Bobby Sands and did it have an immediate effect on you when you, when you, when you found out who he was or when you began to, to learn who he was or, or was it cumulative over time that you became more and more? Well, it, it, it kind of goes in the other direction. I mean, I, I was actually living in Belfast when the, the hunger strikes happened oh. and really during the whole prison protest. I mean, the prison protest lasted about five years from 1976 uh, when, you know, they tried to criminalize uh IRA and other prisoners uh, who were taken in for their political activities. And, you know, as a, as a form of resistance, they refused to be criminalized, which meant they wouldn't wear a criminal uniform. Uh, they wouldn't do prison work. And they insisted on having association with their comrades. And, and so this became a huge prison campaign. And basically what happened then is, as it's described in the book, they were thrown in into their cells without any clothing, without any reading material, without access really to anything. And, you know, they, the, the prison officers just said, well, if you want any rights, you have to put on the prison uniform. And they said, no, we're not going to do that because, you know, that indicates that we're criminals and we're not. We're political prisoners. Right, right. So, you know, I was there during that whole period and it was a, an extremely sort of deep and moving and emotional period especially as it came into the in, into the hunger strikes. And, you know, I was both a student there, but I was also writing for The Guardian and in these times and, and various, uh, you know, outlets in the United States. And, uh, and so I, you know, I was very close to that. And, you know, I knew some of the hunger strikers uh, and, you know, went to many of the funerals and so on. And it was such a deeply impactful and emotional experience that, I actually couldn't write about it for a long period of time. I, I was doing my PhD at the time, and I wrote about the Irish economy. I mean, I went to Dublin and I was writing about <laughs> it because I, I just couldn't deal with it. I mean, right. you know, I mean, you probably know a little bit about trauma as a as a writer. Right. 
and you know, this was such a traumatic experience to many of us personally, but also just to, to the nation. And, uh, you know, it was really only, I guess, uh, 15, 20 years later that, that I began, you know, this process of coming to grips with it and, and being able to deal with it. But by a little bit of luck, you know, that was also the period of the peace process. Mm-hmm. A number of prisoners, you know, Bobby's family basically were, were his, his prison, uh, you know, comrades. And they were just being let out of jail in about 1997, 98, because of the peace process. And that meant that I had a resource that I could go to. And, you know, it's just kind of everything came together at the one time, which made it possible to do the book. I think we all had gotten to a point where we could actually approach it, mm. you know, without just breaking down. Uh, I, I, I don't know if you've ever, ever gone through that kind of a, uh, an experience, but, you know, when that many people are dying and in that kind of a way, 10 men died uh, in, in 1981 uh, during the hunger strike. And, Dying in, of hunger strike is, you know, something very different, for example, than than dying in a war uh, or many other ways of dying. I mean, it's a slow, painful, drawn out uh, thing. And then, of course, the whole community was involved in it. The army and police were, you know, shooting children with plastic bullets. So there were a number of, of, of young people who died because of the kinds of things that were happening on the streets around that period of time. So it was a very heavy time. I I don't know much about your personal biography, but I do have this or did have the sense as I was reading it that I'm that I'm reading the account of an insider. Not only do you depict intimate conversations between the cells and between the the, the patients, but you actually do it in uh, the uh, the Irish Gaelic, uh, which I assume that you have fluency in or yeah. well i don't have fluency in it i have a little bit of it my teacher <laughs> went to irish schools mm-hmm. and, and actually you know that was kind of a really interesting experience because i'd be doing homework with them and it inverted the whole thing they were laughing at me because my hair was so bad making fun and, of and <laughs> my two daughters are very fluent in irish you know right and, you know i knew math and i knew you know history and some other things that we were going over in in in, in homework but it was really kind of nice, you know, for a child right. to be laugh at their parents, you know, who were meant to be the meant to be the experts. Oh, That's yeah. a lesson to me as well in, in in the academy as a professor, you know, that if you can find ways to teach and uh, ways of pedagogy, you know, that actually bring the the students in, right. uh, that that it's a much more effective way of teaching than you know this kind of handing out truth, you know, from the yeah. lecturer to the student. Right, right. Yeah, but I definitely get the sense that that you, uh, I mean, it felt as if I were there, if I were yeah, in, the, and, in, and, in the prison and, cell. You know, the, the reason I think that comes across, and it's something I've been very happy about when people have talked to me or given reviews of the book or so on, is that that comes out, and especially mm-hmm. prisoners who were in there. I mean, Lawrence McGillan is uh, one of the last people who was on hunger strike, and he actually did die on hunger strike and was mm-hmm. brought back. And I've done a lot of work with him. We, we've done a version of this book for young readers, which has won some very big prizes in, in Italy and other parts of the, mm-hmm. of the world. And, uh, you know, they would come out and, you know, Lawrence's review, for example, uh, of, of the book said, you know, 
he was really afraid of doing this with an academic, but, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, you can imagine right, right. As, as, as an activist. But, but he said, you know, when he actually read the book, it wasn't as if I was trying to tell what the story was. It was that, you know, this, the prisoners themselves were telling their story. Right. What I was trying to represent. I mean, you know, there were many, many, many interviews that, that I did. And, and one of the most important things about doing the interviews for a book like this was not the, even the first interview, but the second interview. Hmm. You would go back and you would fill in a whole lot of kind of things, questions that got brought up in the first interview. Right, right. And, you know, one of the great things is that so many of the prisoners uh, wanted to give up their time to the project. And I think that reflects on Bobby Sands on the, you know, the great deal of respect uh, and love uh, that they had for him. You know, not, not just because he died on hunger strike, but really because of the way that he led them through this very terrible uh, protest and time in prison. Yeah, some of those depictions of what uh, um, uh, the the opposition to uh, the IRA, I forget, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I forget the, 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 what the hell they referred to in the book, but those that were going to Catholic houses and actually marking each house so that later on. Oh yeah. Yeah. During, during his, his youth, because he grew up in a, in a very strongly Protestant area. Mm -hmm. And for a period of time when he was young, a young boy, you know, they played soccer together, football, uh, you know, it, it, it didn't matter so much uh, whether you were Catholic or Protestant. And he himself came from a split family. I mean, that was partly Protestant and partly Catholic. But really, as the, as the conflict began to emerge really in the mid-60s, around 1966 or so, that kind of violence became, you know, really prominent, particularly in Protestant neighborhoods. So the sectarianism was was primarily one way that Protestants were basically trying to drive Catholics out of their neighborhoods. And yeah, that that kind of experience was something that was, you know, I think hard to imagine. I mean, right. you know, you hope that you're growing up in a safe environment, but it, when it turns and and you have friends that you know have been your friends forever. And then all of a sudden, they won't talk to you. They won't come around or, or worse. You know, there were, were instances where he was attacked physically by people with razor blades or guns or, or whatever. Right. So that was a very formative experience. Uh, but the other piece of it, I think, that was most important in, in doing the research was that, you know, that just turned him into a resistor, I guess you might say, because he was resisting the kind of... Um, oppression that was being you know put against him and 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 his neighbors and friends uh first of all by by you know these protestant gangs that were going around but mostly by the by the army and by the police because the police were you know just putting people up against walls and and mistreating them and so on and and originally then his his political in in a very broad sense of the word reaction was just one of reaction to the kind of treatment that that he and his friends and parents and uncles and so on were going through, and it was really only in prison then that he 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 got a real political understanding of mm -hmm. what was happening to him. You know, I um, I didn't really know much about Bobby Sands. I mean. I grew up in a time when, of course, when he died, it was big news and, you know, mm -hmm. he was known as a hunger, hunger strike. Um, but 
after reading this book, I started to do a little bit more, you know, looking in on him, what most people uh-huh. today call the research, i.e. Googling. And, yeah. uh, and, you know, got a kind of a, a larger picture of him. But um, I'm wondering, as when he died, you were in Belfast, wrong? were you in Belfast when he died? And do you remember the day where you were, what you heard about it and what the impact it might have had on you? You know, actually, I, I wasn't on the day that he died. When, when most of the hunger strikers died, I was in Belfast. Uh, but on the day that Bobby Sands died, I was in the U.S., and, you know, we had been involved in some support work uh, for the prisoners in Detroit. So, you know, I was around Detroit at that period of time, and we were just trying to do some some support work. Uh, but then went directly back, you know, I think, you know, within days or weeks. Oh, so were you able to be part of that massive gathering uh, around his funeral? I saw some. I, some wasn't, video there. I, I wasn't there during his funeral. I was there during some of the other funerals, and you know, one of the famous uh, funerals was, was the funeral of Joe McDonnell, which was actually attacked by the British Army. Mm. And you know, I was there during that funeral, for example, and and many of the others. Uh, and you know, those were pretty well. I, I don't think there's a single word that you could use to describe you know what happened there. I mean, it was hectic, it was chaos, it was violent. It, you know. There were so many both emotional and physical things that were going on during during those. The other experience, I think, that, that was very, very difficult, of course, because of the Irish uh, tradition of, of the wake, was going to the houses of hunger strikers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were laid out of their coffins. But, you know, these were young men. At, you know, at most, I think Joe, I think Joe McDonald was the oldest one, maybe Francis Hughes, but... You know, they they were no more than thirty, but mostly they were in their in their early twenties and mid twenties. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you went in and, and you know viewed the coffin and everything, they, these looked like you know ninety five year old men because mm-hmm. of the things that they had gone through. And you know, some experiences like that, I think, were kind of the most traumatic thing for those of us who you know were on the outside. And you know, there were some other things. I mean, I did actually go and visit. Um, the prison and visited a hunger striker during, during the hunger strike. Mm-hmm. Um, not as myself, <laughs> you know, I had someone else's ID. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, you know, the security. You don't want your passport taken away. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I, I just wouldn't have been allowed in basically, right. you know, families and others could, could go in. Right. You know, I did go in to, to talk to the guy and interview him about, about the hunger strike and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, this this is a, a first. I mean, first revealed on words on a wire. <laughs> oh, well, <I'm, laughs> it was you know that was that was quite an amazing right. experience. Not only to to you know talk to someone you know during the hunger strike who was involved in this, but also just the the level of uh, of, of security uh, and animosity mm-hmm. and that was taking place within that prison context. And, you know, years later, I went in with Lawrence McEwen, who I mentioned before, who was one of the last hunger strikers. And, um, you know, we, we went in and actually went into the room where Bobby died, wow. uh, went into the hospital wing, went into some of the page blocks. And, and at that point, they, you know, they were just wrecks. It, it, the whole place had been closed down for mm-hmm. you know, 10 or 15 years. But that was also a very moving experience. I mean, to actually be in, you know, the rooms 
Have they pre preserved that cell to this day for visitors or they just... No, they had. I, I, I don't know that it's open to visitors and there was a huge kind of struggle that was going on about, you know, whether they would keep parts of that prison open or not. And, mm -hmm. you know, of course, it was the ones who, who maintained the prison regime that just wanted to wipe it out and right. knock it to the ground. And the ones who suffered from the prison regime who, you know, insisted that, that at least some of it had to be kept open. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've, I'm actually not sure what's happened now. I mean, what's happened with the prison. The hope was to turn it into a museum uh, of some kind, mm -hmm. you know, a cultural site. Um, I'll, I'll go see. I'll let you know. <laughs> okay. So I uh, was telling my wife uh, the other night, I was saying, yeah, I'm going to be talking to Dennis about his book on Bobby Sands. And um, I go, it's a really good book. I mean, it's compelling. It reads almost like a novel. And she goes, what are you going to do? Tell him that you were surprised you liked it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, well, really, I really thought I, it was I really, think, you know, I really, I thought the difficulties was, finding an agent and finding, you know, I mean, I, I did find this wonderful woman, Frances Golden, who people like in the literature community will know, uh, who, who, you know, really believed in the book and valued mm -hmm. the book and, you know, helped put us in touch with nation books mm -hmm. like that. But, you know, getting people to, you know, think about a book that was, you know, written by an academic and so on, you know. And look how thick it is. It's, it's intimidating right from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, it was twice as big. And I, I, I just... <laughs> Uh, an interview with someone the other day at a conference and uh, it was twice as big wow. when I started and I actually did the editing of that in Oventique which is a Zapatista community in Chiapas. Mm. Oh nice, and nice. The spirit it, it of the really interesting. Yeah. into it. <laughs> so I mean I think they helped me you know to pare yeah. down the book from you know uh, whatever 1400 pages to wow. 600 pages or whatever it is. Yeah. Well, that's that's yeah. It, it's a very compelling read from the beginning to the end, and I love how you end it with the beginning. Uh, the last chapter is called the beginning, and it is pretty much when he dies. Can you talk a little bit about why the end was the beginning for the movement and for the book in particular? Yeah, I mean, the, one of the interesting things about the hunger strike it was partly about what was going on in prison and and you know the the things that the prisoners were forced to go through. But whenever that prison movement emerged in the late 70s, the Republican movement as a whole, you know, the IRA and so on, were really in very bad shape. I mean, the mm -hmm. British prime minister said, we're going to squeeze them like a tube of toothpaste. Yeah. And then Maggie Thatcher came in. And of course, you know, Maggie was just, you know, the Iron Lady and she was not going to give an inch. She didn't even uh, uh, say anything respectful the day he died. It was more just kind of an aggressive remark. Yeah, I mean, they were, you know, he was, he was a member of parliament because, you know, he won a seat in, in the British parliament during his period of time on hunger strike. And, you know, that was just not recognized at all. I mean, there, there are these usual protocols mm -hmm. recognizing when a member of parliament dies, but that was just kind of totally uh, ignored in, in his case. But on the other hand, I mean, you know, it was the beginning in terms of a global understanding of, you know, what was going on in, in the Irish struggle. And, you know, from that, the peace process began to emerge. Uh, the U.S. became involved and, you know, kind of uh, ultimately leading to Clinton's visit and shaking hands with Bobby Sands on the Falls Road in Belfast. And those kinds of things that I think would have been unimaginable before, 
and there's still you know big uh, big debates certainly in Ireland and and especially in Belfast about whether this is all a good thing or not you know and mm-hmm. a lot of people would say what would Bobby do would he have done it or not but mm-hmm. certainly it was the beginning of a change in the way that that I think most activists were thinking about what the struggle was and you know and led you know now Sinn Féin uh, the party, you know, that was associated with the IRA is one of the most, if not the most popular party in Ireland. In the last elections, they got more votes than any other party. Oh. And uh, they, I think they soon will, will have the most votes in the north of Ireland as well. So, you know, it had a, a huge impact on the nature of politics and particularly electoral politics uh, on the island of Ireland. The title of the book, the full title is... Uh Nothing but an unfinished song, Bobby Sands, the Irish hunger striker who ignited a generation. What really I found interesting about the entire narrative is his time in the IRA as an active member was very, very limited. And that his significance actually is because of how he organized within the prison walls, the rejection of the of the uniforms. And then, of course, Exactly. Uh, the, the hunger strike. Yeah. In fact, one of the scenes that I thought, well, this is a great cinematic moment is when he goes up to uh, leaders of the IRA and he says, hey, you know, I want to be a part of it. And they kind of like, you know, OK, yeah, whatever. But then they call him when he's on a, a soccer pitch, you know, a pitch. I love that. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> to, to move a weapon. Yeah. Right. Right. And immediately yeah. he does it without question. Yeah. And then like maybe I don't know, it seems very shortly after that he was already in prison. And 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 so his. He's known mostly for being a hunger striker, which is also kind of ironic in a sense, because the IRA, I believe, I don't know a lot about it, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, believed in some sort of armed insurrection against uh, uh, the Mm -hmm. oppressor. But he became well known for what is associated with peaceful movements, with Gandhi, with, you know. uh, Well, and and I think. You know, and that's a that's something I think that we kind of misread a lot of times when we look at at guerrilla movements. You know, even if 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 you were to read uh, you know Che's accounts of the of the of the struggle in the Sierra Maestra or the Long March of Mao, mm-hmm. you know, they included you know these very intense and in many cases horrible uh, episodes uh, that were associated with the armed struggle. But you know, some of the things are about prefigurative movements about building, you know, the kind of utopian society that we want right now. And Che, for example, and, you know, in some passages of that book is his proudest moments are setting up a bakery or, <laughs> or the radio station, yeah. you know, and what they can do with the radio station right. and get the message out and things like that and getting peasants involved uh, in the movement. And I think that's the same thing that was going on with Bobby, although he took it far beyond, I think, what most people who are involved in guerrilla struggle uh, take it. And, and you know, he was only out, as you mentioned, between his, he had two long periods in prison, uh, the, the second of which, you know, led to his death on hunger strike. He was out for six months, and that's all between those two periods. Right. But in that period of time when he was in this uh, neighborhood called Twinbrook, uh, you know, he organized all kinds of things. You know, he was mm-hmm. basically trying to reorganize and motivate the community and activate the community. So, you know, he organized, a, you know, a, a, an old people's center. He organized all kinds of mm. youth activities. He was doing things to fix up houses, you know, and replace windows that were, 
that were smashed in and just all kinds of things working a lot with young people in the community to, you know, get them involved. It created a newspaper that, you know, was basically became, you know, the most, the most popular, um, you know, media within the area, apart probably from Coronation Street or one of those things that, that people watch on TV. But, uh, you know, he, he, he really was very much into building society and building, you know, a just and equal society. And I think that, and that's then what he did in prison, you know, is he took that into prison and, you know, in this very stripped atmosphere where people are in cells due to a cell, no clothing, no books, mm -hmm. no nothing. Yet they built this oral community, uh, you know, by shouting at each other and doing lessons, of course, smuggling uh, tobacco and, and right. messages and so on. So it was really an amazing community that they built. And, I always tell people, you know, when I started this project, I, I started wanting to know who Bobby, uh, Bobby Sands, the hunger striker was. But what I realized that it wasn't how he died, but how he lived, that was the most important. Oh, that, that makes sense. A lot of mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. You're bringing up uh, when you started the book. Can you walk us through the the. I guess the the moment or moments that led up to making the decision, I am going to write this book and all the research that it took you until the day that you were ready to turn into a publisher. How long was that? And, and what did it consist yeah. of? Um, I, I, I started it around, uh, as I said, you know, right after 1997, there was a, an anniversary of the death of Che Guevara. And, and I read a few biographies of him that, that I thought were very good. Uh, and, and so that led me to thinking about biography, but then I said, you know, who, who could you write a biography about that would help you get an insight into what's going on in Ireland? Mm -hmm. And the first name that would have come out would, would be Jerry Adams, but you know, he was still involved in things and finding out what Jerry Adams really thought or really did and all that, I think would have still been impossible to do. But then I began to think, well, you know, Bobby Sands is this enigma. And he's a he's a hero to one community, but they really know very little about him apart from the people that were his friends, and and also his his uh, prisoners that were that were in prison with him. And so I you know began to think, well, could could you do this? You know, the first thing I needed was clearance from the movement. So I mean, I had oh. the, the movement to say, yes, you can go ahead and do this. Otherwise, it would have been like co-opting or something. Uh, it's it's just you know they call it clearance basically you know and, you know certain people are 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 you know sort of put to the task of evaluating the thing and basically from within the army I mean it's right. in the IRA not not you know the broader movement so much and they basically have to make a choice that you can do this or you can't do this and they tell their volunteers which you know almost all of the ex prisoners uh, were IRA volunteers and therefore you know, they needed to have the clearance that they could talk to me mm -hmm. and, you know, getting that. And then particularly there were key figures, you know, uh, one is Shana Walsh, who was very, very close to Bobby in both of his prison periods and also on the outside in, in Twinbrook. And, you know, I went to, to see Shana and ask him if he would do interviews about Bobby that I was wanted to write this book. And he said, um, well, would, would 10 minutes do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And I and I said, yeah, well, let's take what you get. <laughs> take what you can get. So we, we, we set up some interviews, you know, but in the end, I mean, I think we did three sessions, all of which went on, you know, probably for a couple of hours, you know, and mm-hmm. just on and on and on. And when you got people like him who were so close to Bobby, but who also had, you know, a huge reputation within the movement, you know, whenever the whenever the IRA uh, had their announcement of the ceasefire. Shana was the one who was sent on on television to announce the IRA ceasefire. So, I mean, he was probably one of the most respected people in the whole movement. And to get him behind this, you know, and, and other key people like him, uh, Bick McFarlane, who took over as the officer in command in the prison. Yeah, he's he's mentioned a lot in the break, yeah. Uh, you know, people like that, uh, if once they came around, you know, then it snowballed and, and, you know, people, you know, and then you get other people. I remember going to one person who knew him early in life and, uh, I knocked on the door, you know, out of the blue, this was in a Mm. part of North Belfast, way away from where most of the things were going on, you know, and he, he looked at me and I explained what I was doing. He said, I've been waiting for you to come to this (laughs) That's yeah. nice. And, yeah. you know, and there were really hard men, you know, who you could talk to. And within two hours, I mean, they were in tears. Um, you know, men who, in some cases, who, who had been through some pretty, um, pretty horrific armed, you know, activities and engagements, you know. So uh, I think as that snowballing kind of went on, that, that, you know, made it clear that I could do it. And then there were some archival things. You know, I was able to get the chief justice of uh, the the court to give me permission to go and, and look through his police files. And, you know, that was was really a huge thing. And I remember they set me up in a little uh, room where a lot of court officials and people were. And, you know, I had a thing from them, a letter from the from the chief justice that said, you know, you you have to record these things completely. And I forget exactly how he put it. And I was in there, and after a couple of hours, they came and tried to kick me out. Mm. And, you know, you've been here long enough. You know, you've seen what you need to see. And I pulled out this letter. I said, no, this is from the chief justice. And it says, I have to be complete. I have to go through this this and I, and record it accurately and completely. Wow. And so they had to go away. And I spent, you know, I think a day and a half, you know, literally writing down, uh, you know, everything that was in those files. So I had a, I, I was like, I was on the inside of an interrogation room mm-hmm. when, you know, the back and forth was going on between, between Bobby and, and the police. And there's one point in the book, which, you know, I really had a lot of fun with because I had Bobby's account of what went on and I had the police account mm-hmm. what went on and I put them side by side. I don't know if you remember that, that uh-huh. piece, but it's for a few pages, you know, the uh-huh. by side accounts of what the police say was going on in, in an interrogation. And then what mm-hmm. Bob said uh, when he came out, you know, he left, uh, he, he left out with some human rights activists. And um, so there, you know, there were a lot of both, uh, you know, archival and, and, you know, contemporary sources, but interviews that were necessary. Right. Right. And so, you gathered all this information. You went to all these interviews, and I imagine you either recorded them or took very good notes. And then you 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 brought it to your office. and And how did you? How long did it take you to 
get all that material and to write the narrative that you wrote? Well, I mean, the, 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 the research went on, you know, for four or five years. Uh, and the, you know, the writing took something like that as well. So, I mean, you know, it was, if I, if I started in 1998, the book came out in, in, you know, 2006, um, you know, it was about an eight year process and all to do it, but it was such an intensive process that it, you know, to me, it was just day to day, you know, you, you know how it is when you just right. get into something and you don't want to be doing anything else, basically. I mean, right. you know, to be a daddy and, uh, you know, a family member and a member of the community. And I had other things and I was, right. you know, a, a professor at the time as well. And, you know, putting all of those things together, but actually finding time to get away. I had, a, I had a room in the house where we were living that was almost exactly the same size as the prison cell. Wow. <laughs> and that was kind That's of weird nice. too. You know, yeah. I would go and shut the door and there was me and the computer, which of course Bobby right. and and you know, and my materials and tapes of interviews and things like that. And um, you know, that was, you know, a very intense experience. And sometimes you would kind of sit and imagine, you know, then what it was like to be in a room mm -hmm. size, you know, and you couldn't hardly imagine it because of course I had books and papers and pencils, which none of them had, but but mm -hmm. yeah. That was a pretty intense experience as well. I admire the language. Right from the beginning, we have this line, the screws bought, brought Bobby Sands back to a cell in H block three at a quarter to nine. First sentence. Already the sentence is compelling because we don't know who the screws are, but we know who they are at the same time. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. and we feel like we're about to get an intimate portrayal and, or an, we're going to be told this story. And I'm wondering that kind of language, uh, it, it, it seems to me that when you can follow that kind of language, the story starts to make choices itself that you just kind of follow. And I'm wondering, at what point did you start the, telling the story? Was it after the research? Was it during the research? Was it before the research? Uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, one of a, a, a colleague of mine who was very close, a friend of mine, you know, who, who I used to work with a lot more on academic stuff. I remember him saying to me, you know, I never remember writing anything. All I remember is editing. And, <laughs> you know, I, I kind of felt the same way. That, wow. that, you know, I feel that, you know, if I look back over my whole career, uh, not just in this book, but in other things as well, I mean, I think it's the mark of a, of a good writer is that they're willing to take the time to edit and work and work. Right. Work and right. work. There is it's no good writing. There's writing, only the rewriting. There is no good writing. There's only good rewriting. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So there was a lot of that, but then it was also moving it around. And, you know, that particular incident where you're talking about, which was, you know, right after the first hunger strike mm -hmm. ended in a failure because, you know, this, this guy, the dark who was leading the hunger strike, called it off in order to save the life of one of the hunger strikers. And, you know, that just led, you know, Bobby and many of the others were just extremely uh, upset, emotional about it. And, you know, this was like a very, very, probably the, the key moment. Mm -hmm. Life of Bobby Sands was this point at which, you know, he saw something that had failed to achieve its purpose. And he said, okay, well, I'm going to have to, take this up. And it was kind of an immediate thing that he goes back into the cell and he says, no, I'm going on mm. hunger. And I know this time I'm going to die. 
because this is going to be a political struggle. And then they begin to plan how they were going to do it in such a way that no one person could stop it. No one person could make it fail in the way that the first one failed. And, you know, he went forward. The movement tried to stop it over and over and over again, that period between the first hunger strike and the second hunger strike. But that was a really key, key moment. And that's part of the writing, too, is to just, you know, I, I don't know if every book has that. Maybe you, you probably know more than I do about it. But, you know, does every book, does every story just have this key moment of, of change, of really intensive? Mm-hmm. And it's not the climax, you know? Right, right. It's, it's actually a point at which something is set in train, which I think, can't be stopped, which then will lead to the climax, perhaps, if there is such a thing. But, um, yeah, you know, it's just this key moment. And that was figuring out what that was or, you know, bringing that to the front of the book was, you know, I think a key decision. You know, I couldn't help but every time, you know, as I was reading this book uh, to think about uh, what uh, uh, Pincola Estes calls uh, El Rio Bajo del Rio, right? Which is the the yeah. energy that underlines a narrative that keeps it pushing, keeps it going. And I couldn't yeah. help but think of Dennis O'Hearn doing this research, going into these police stations, into a little dark room where they're you know, uh, uh, trying to uh, you know find all the information. And I'm also struck. Stri- uh, uh, what also strikes me is that Bobby Sands today is probably unknown to the majority of our students here at UTEP. If I were to go and I think ask that's them, right. they probably wouldn't even yeah. know who he was. And and in part, Dennis O'Hearn is keeping Bobby Sands alive. He's keeping his significance alive. And I'm wondering, have you ever considered writing the narrative about? writing the narrative, the young man doing the research, the young man who was so moved by the life of this uh, uh, resistor that he couldn't write about him for for years. Have you ever thought about doing that? Well, I mean, that would be fascinating to me, but I don't know if it would be fascinating to everyone else (laughs) to, to, to read that, you know. And 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 the other thing, of course, is that you move on to new yeah, things. Right, right. Uh, so you know, I mean, it's interviews like this. I think is where those kinds of things get replayed and get worked out. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've had a million conversations. Well, not literally a million, but but probably a thousand mm-hmm. uh, since you know the book came out, talking exactly about these kinds of things that you're asking about, and 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 people do find it interesting, uh, yeah. and maybe there is. Now, you, you remember there was this film about Don Quixote that never got made. Terry Gilliam, it was. No. So they made a film about the making of, or the, right. the ability of Terry Gilliam to make the film. And, and I, I think, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say that, the, you know, I think that's kind of what this, what, what this would be. Right. And there is there there is kind of an emerging genre of historical or researched fiction where part of the narrative includes, you know, the... Uh, the writer herself doing all the research yeah, and, and what they're you know, going I'm, through. I'm, I'm not into that. I mean, you know, increasingly in anthropology, for example, there's this autoethnography. I find it arrogant, frankly. And, <laughs> you know, this book is not about me. Right, right. About Bobby Sands. And that's part of the reason that it had the, the method, I think, that I used and why I, I like it when people say, well, you know, I feel like I'm right there in the cell with these people because I'm not really massaging you know, what they're saying, about, right. you know, I mean, I, I had to triangulate an awful lot 
And, you know, just getting one thing following the other because they're moving them around from one cell to another, from one block to another, and getting the narrative to kind of follow in a an order that made sense and 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 that was also factual. Mm-hmm. It was was something you know that was really difficult. But the thing that made it possible was having all of the prisoners' voices basically that were you know helping that to emerge. And you know I think that's the important thing about this kind of work is mm-hmm. you know the voice of the people who went through it. I'm a right. minor marginal figure, and and so I guess that that piece of autoethnography is just you know not interesting to you yeah that makes sense um one more thing uh before i let you go and that is um um you're not the only one to have made parallels between bobby sands and che Guevara, and you know even some of the images of of him in uh prison with the blanket wrapped around and long hair very jesus looking yeah uh, you know have become you know uh, iconic images in in uh uh, world political culture. Uh, che Guevara, his significance now, uh, you know, may not still hold, you know, his uh, exact revolutionary ideals, but rather just this yeah. idea of resistance. And you find Che Guevara all over Latin America on beer cans. You can find him on a credit card. You can find him <laughs> in all kinds of different pop culture uh, uh, imagery. And I'm wondering, you know, and, and it makes us ask, who does Che Guevara belong to? And I'm wondering the same thing about Bobby Sands. When you, if I were to go to Belfast right now, are there going to be T-shirts with Bobby Sands? Are there going to be Bobby Sands, you know, uh, boggled, boggled head dolls? And and to whom does he belong now? And what is his meaning today? Yeah, I mean, there's no bogglehead dolls, but yeah, <laughs> I mean, there have there have been T-shirts, and of course, there are murals all over the place. Yeah. Still is, you know, kept uh, by the community, and I think. You know, first of all, he belongs to the community. He belongs to to the prisoners who, you know, went through this struggle and with him and so on, you know. Uh, and and he belongs to the community. And I know there's been, you know, real debates and, and even fights, you know, about that, you know. And uh, I, I, I guess in a way it's, you know, not a matter of who does he belong to, but what can we learn from him mm-hmm. and, you know, what do we take from a life like Bobby Sands's or, you know, or, or whoever we're talking about, whether it's Jesus Christ or Che Guevara, uh, you know, what does, what do we each get out of it? And, and, you know, to write a book like this was a matter of, you know, just kind of putting it out there and giving people an opportunity to, to read it, to be inspired by it as many prisoners in the U S and Turkey and, you know, in the best country, and really around the world have been inspired by not just what Bobby did, but what, what his fellow prisoners. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that is really the most important thing about it. It's not the ownership, but the making it available. And, and, and what is uh, uh, for you uh, and what do you hope for the reader to, to get out of Bobby Sands experience? I think, you know, one thing that, that I got out of it myself was you know, moving away from the idea of kind of struggle and revolution and, you know, achieving something, this being a process that has an end where you achieve something and getting more into the idea of what, you know, what some people call prefiguration Mm -hmm. that, you know, no, we don't wait until we achieve victory and then we build a society. We have to be, we have to start now. 
And I think that was the thing that I got out of it was that's what Bobby was doing. And that's what his comrades were doing during that whole period. You know, I think they saw themselves as Marxists, you know, in one way or another, but mm -hmm. they were more anarchist than Marxists because they were actually building this society now. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think that's extremely important. And, you know, it's one thing that living in a Zapatista community while I was kind of writing and editing this book, because that's what they're doing, you know. Right. And, and, you know, some of that became apparent in that process, you know, what this is really about it is not just about fighting a struggle and winning uh, at the end. And of course, you know, whenever we win, we lose because, you know, nothing turns out the way we want it to turn out. And, you, <laughs> right. know, you know, the Soviet Union, of course, is, is the, the, the typical example is are, are so many other places where revolutions have taken place but then not achieved, you know, what we would hope that they would achieve in terms of building an equitable and, and good society. And, you know, to me, it was like, well, you know, let, let's stop waiting for this magic moment. Mm. We have to start now. We have to build things now. And even if it's about, you know, your sports teams or, or you know, musical activities <laughs> in the community, you're taking it out of, this capitalist system where things are valued according to how much money goes into it. And you're putting a new value on the things that you do, which is mm -hmm. you're valuing things according to how committed are you to it? How much do you want to do it? You don't have to be paid to do it. These are mm -hmm. things do because we love each other and that we get something out of, out of uh, our activities with each other. And, and those were the kinds of lessons I think I learned from the book. That's beautifully stated. The name of the book is Nothing But an Unfinished Song, Bobby Sands, the Irish Hunger Striker Who Ignited a Generation. And if you are listening to this locally, you can get this book at Literary Bookstore right here in El Paso, one of the best little independent bookstores in the world. Um, they have this book on the shelf ready for people to come by and take a look. Right, and nice. I, it's a compelling story. Dr. O'Hearn, thank you for joining me on Words on a Wire. It's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed it. I'd like to thank Dennis O'Hearn for joining me on Words on a Wire, and the book is Nothing But an Unfinished Song. See you next time on Words on a Wire. Mm -hmm.